I learned that relationship meant in some ways having no boundaries and in other ways having super strong and flexible boundaries. And I carried that into different relationships that I've had. So all of these things have been formative as it relates to what I saw in my family relationship. I'm so excited to bring you more Humans of Intimacy interviews. I truly love this format because it's not just about some level of expertise that somebody has developed from studying or from research. This is all about what are the insights, the lessons learned from real, raw, messy personal experience. And we get into that side of things. Generally speaking, nobody has some deep level of expertise in something without some level of personal experience. The reason why they have all these resources, all these tools, all this knowledge is because they've had to go through something to get there. They have had to learn. They have had to find solutions for tough times in their lives or in their relationships. So I really love the Humans of Intimacy interviews. I'll be bringing more your way, so be sure to tune in. Today's interview is with Adriana Robertson, who's a co-founder, former Harvard leadership trainer, and has over 10 years of experience leading retreats, facilitating, and developing educational materials about leadership, identity, communication, belonging, and flow. In our conversation, we talk about what shaped her views on relationships, how to tap into your intuition and develop an inner compass for more aligned, authentic decision-making to guide you in your life and in your relationships. We talk about the biggest challenges she's had in her relationship with herself, her intimate relationship with anger, feelings of not being good enough, and how she has navigated and learned and what her anger has taught her. And of course, coming back to the relationship between love, vulnerability, rejection, fear, and wholeness. I'm so excited for you to tune into this interview. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for making the time. I'm so excited to have you and then Michael and then the two of you together as a part of this series. And we're kicking things off today with your Humans of Intimacy interview. So to start things off, I would love to just have you tell our listeners a bit about who you are and what you dedicate yourself to. My name is Adriana Robertson, first of all, and I am the chief product officer and co-founder of an organization called Paradox. And we work both with companies doing transformational leadership work and helping leaders begin to co-create and facilitate more flow and belonging within their teams. We also are launching a new branch of our work where we're beginning to do a lot of work in the realm of intimacy. So 
intimacy and relationship as a portal to initiation in different aspects of our lives. So that's in a nutshell of my work. And I also have a background in life coaching and yoga and mindfulness education. I started my career in international development. So the work that we do now feels like it's allowed me to really bring all of these passions and all of the experiences I've had together. And that has been incredibly rewarding. I love that part about intimacy as a portal to initiation. It sounds so powerful. I'd love to hear a bit about why you love this space. So you and Michael often talk about how, in fact, the first time we ever connected, we connected based on how much we love communication, connection, relationships, paradox, and BBXX have a lot of things in common in terms of the overall goal and slightly different topics or portals or pathways into going after that kind of shared goal or feeling or connection. What is it that draws you to this topic? I think belonging and wholeness are two things that I have spent a lot of time thinking about in my life and that I felt really compelled by. I grew up bilingually, biculturally, I'm Peruvian American, first generation in the US. And I often felt in different environments that I was in, like it didn't feel like all of me was able to be expressed in different contexts. And then there was also the layer of, I think I had it and I'm still learning how to welcome and embrace all aspects of myself and release any judgment, shame, blame, guilt, or fear of judgment among so many other things and actually allow myself to welcome and embrace all of me. And so the different experiences I've had in those areas, both internally and externally, have led to this dedication, this passion for creating spaces where not only me, but everybody feels like they have a space where they belong and that we can belong to ourselves. And the more that I have opened up to intimacy in my own life, both with myself and in my partnership, I've learned to realize like how much we need each other, like how our freedom is really entangled. Amazing. I love how you kind of draw the parallels. You described your upbringing, kind of the bicultural part of that and not always feeling like you belonged and could fully express who you were. And I know that you and Michael often talk about how a relationship is trying to figure out how these two humans can fully express themselves and not feel rejected and feel accepted, but not come into conflict in this dance around the individual expression and how it comes out and how it's received within the context of that partnership. And in a way, that's something we're trying to do our entire lives, whether it's in friendships, in our family. And I think especially when we're younger, but still as we get older, there's that constant like, can I fully express who I am? Are you still viewing me in a box as who I was? We're constantly evolving. And again, I feel like this dance is the perfect metaphor. So going back to that bicultural aspect, I often think of communication, even if we're speaking the same language, if our relationship is in English or Spanish or whatever, we are speaking completely different languages as the different individuals that we are and have been shaped by so many different experiences and contexts and cultures and trauma and all of that. And so trying to figure out, okay, how can we learn how to interpret and learn how to express our own language? But that all starts with, you have to understand 
what language you are speaking in order to be able to teach somebody else and show them what you're trying to say. And then lastly, I really love to always remind people that generally anybody who is really into this topic, it is not because it has been so easy and they have never had obstacles. It comes as a direct result of having to do it yourself. And the more that you have done it, the more you can show other people that path where you've crawled through the mud already. And so I think just stories and those personalized parts of it are some of the most interesting. And of course, the beauty is that talking to different people, the stories and the individual perspectives are endless. So I'm excited to dive into that with you today. Me too. I'm on board with all of that. Perfect. Well, to help our listeners get to know you and kind of get to understand the context through which you came to learn about relationships, intimacy, whatever it is. I'd love to have you tell us a bit about growing up. What is it that shaped your views on relationships? What influences, whether that was culturally, your family, the media, movies, peers, whatever, language, what shaped your view on relationships? And what was that view? So definitely as a child, the thing that had the biggest influence on me was watching my parents' relationship. And there was loyalty and love, but there was also a lot of disconnection. And in a lot of ways, I feel like the way that I witnessed my dad be in relationship with my mom, it felt like love was conditional. And also the way that he was with my brother and I, where it was like, if we upset him, love was withheld and like it would come back at some point, but there was no knowing when it would. And depending on how we would behave, we were uncertain as to whether or not we were going to be given love or it was going to be taken away. And I also felt like I learned that in order to be loved, I needed to be the best in some ways. There was this competitive edge to it. And I certainly don't think my dad did any of this consciously, but it was really challenging to feel like I'm actually never good enough for a relationship. Like in order to be loved, I need to actually be outperforming. And that, yeah, that was really painful. And so I think it taught me to believe for a long time that I actually wasn't ever going to be enough for one person. So that's a really deeply imprinted work that touched me, that imprinted some grooves. And also like I witnessed mom not speak up. Like I mentioned, there was this kind of gap in understanding one another. And I saw my mom not really know how to hold her own boundaries and so I kind of internalized two different messages as it related to relationship. Because on the one hand, my mom, I didn't really have a model for holding boundaries. And my dad had really intense boundaries, like very strong, rigid boundaries. I learned that relationship meant in some ways having no boundaries and in other ways having super strong, inflexible boundaries. And I carried that into different relationships that I've had. So all of these things have been really formative as it relates to what I saw in my family relationship. And then I also would say the other things that have affected my 
view of relationships or like some of my younger, more formative relationships. I learned to trust my intuition a lot. Like that was a really big thing that came online for me. And a lot of that was because I was gaslit in these relationships where I wouldn't say that was happening all the time. But when I sensed that some things were off, in fact, I was being cheated on in a couple of these different relationships. I was gaslit and made to think that I was crazy and that it wasn't true. And so actually a really important lesson for me in relationship was actually learning to trust my intuition. There is a wisdom that lives inside of all of us. And I think that I've been told in so many different instances in my life, you're just being sensitive. That's not accurate. And like consistently I've seen truth underneath that. And it might not have revealed itself in that moment, but the truth came out. And so that has been hugely influential for me in terms of realizing even the moments that where there's been pain and heartbreak have actually really helped inform how I want to be, who I want to be in relationship with another human being. Going back to your childhood, and I don't know if it's just the people I hang out with and what their parents were like, but this idea that we need to perform or we need to be perfect or we need to be the best and the strongest. And of course, they're not always, probably a lot of the time, not intentionally communicated in that way. But how many of us spend our entire upbringing? figuring out how to properly perform or be perfect. And later on, I think a lot of people have trouble unlearning and accepting the idea that actually you're not supposed to perform when it then comes to the point of being in a relationship, in a partnership with another person, that in fact, if you're performing, you're setting yourself up for an inauthentic relationship, right? You're not going to be able to connect as deeply with that filter of performance kind of blocking that connection. And I think that's something that a lot of people can really relate to. And the beauty and the pain of a partnership is that it often brings to the forefront and really puts to the test so many of our triggers, so many of our opportunities for growth that have yet to be tapped into. And then there's also, of course, we can do so much of the work on our own and learn the things and know the theory, but it's totally different when you're in that moment with another person trying to figure out how to communicate your triggers and your trauma without setting off landmines of theirs. I love that. I was just going to say, I often think about I feel like relationships, my intimate relationships are the clearest mirrors I've ever had in my life. It's just looking in the mirror and seeing myself. And there are ways in which that has really helped me appreciate aspects of myself that I wasn't fully able to before. And there are also ways in which it's really been a mirror for me to see my shadows, to see the parts that are unintegrated come out sideways or come out unskillfully. And it actually feels very much like a spiritual path. I love everything that you shared and I feel a lot of resonance with that. Yeah, I think unintegrated is a great way to put it. And the idea that that mirror for better and for worse can show us so much of the beauty and the skill and the kind of amazingness that we have and 
what we can co-create in that and can um, kind of show some of those unintegrated parts. And I think the irony is that oftentimes people think that the reflection they're seeing in a relationship is inaccurate when the idea that you're bringing up is maybe it's actually the clearest version. It's not always the easiest, but it can bring a lot of clarity and the opportunity to integrate those parts of us in a safe, accepting environment and in a way that one, we can't do on our own and two, we can't do in many other types of relationships. I won't say all, but in many other ones. Yeah. And I think it's worth saying Certainly when I say the clearest mirror, it doesn't mean that any other partner I've ever been with, they're bringing their distortions and their filters, be that their identity, their experiences, their culture, their education, all of these things are informing the lens through which they see me. So it doesn't mean, it's not to say that like they're always seeing me clearly, but the dynamic and what emerges through that for me has always helped myself see more clearly because I do think that like when in the moments where I, we as a partnership have been able, and I'll use Michael as an example, like, cause it's the time that it's happened the most for me. Like when we're dropped into our hearts and we are present and being with one another, his reflections have been so deeply healing for me and helped me understand myself and see myself clearly. And even when the distortions are coming through and his own biases or whatever experience he's had are informing his interaction with me, there's still things, if I'm willing to get really honest with myself and stay and be present, then I have the ability to see beyond the distortion and to see like what's there that I can learn from. Yeah, what comes to mind is, as you mentioned, everybody's lens is distorted, but we don't no, it's distorted if it's all we know. And so when you look through a camera and you kind of are fixing the focus or some of them even have for like people who have a prescription to change, but then you have the focus, the aperture, all of this to bring things into focus. But if you are used to a distorted lens without that person there to help create kind of an influence on the other side of the spectrum, then you wouldn't know. And so being able to come to that clarity, despite from two distorted ways, but the mutual distortion allows for the kind of mutual recognition of what is clarity and what isn't in a way that, yeah, we wouldn't be able to do on our own. And I think most importantly is when you have a partner or person who can hold that space and can create that environment for you to be able to do so. And so we'll definitely come back to that because that's not easy, but like you're saying, it can be so healing and so transformative. Very much so. Quickly, in terms of the intuition that you mentioned, I think this is something that a lot of people find difficult if they are tapped into their intuition or not, if they can trust it or not, and then having confusion across kind of different channels of, is this my intuition or is this kind of my head versus my heart versus my gut? What for you did you find allowed you to discover and cultivate that connection with your intuition? And what advice maybe would you give to somebody who isn't sure that they are able to 
listen or hear or find their own intuition? First of all, it's a lifelong journey for me. I think I have just scratched the surface in this realm. But what I can share is that often it comes as a feeling for me initially. Like there's a feeling and there's like a visceral response in my body where there is a shift in my energy, whether my heartbeat changes and there's some emotion that I feel that connects to it. And initially I used to get hooked with the thought and what I have become or what I'm developing my capacity with is to really notice first where I'm feeling what I'm feeling and to get really curious about what that is and to listen, to like really take the time to slow down and listen, not to brush that voice off or not, or that felt sense off, but to actually like sit down just as if I was sitting down with a young child to be really present with them and to really make sure that they felt understood when they were afraid or when something was coming up. And often when I ask these questions, like I used to, I think initially when I was on my path of intuition, I would ask the question. It felt like I was using the metaphor of a little child. Like I was squeezing the hands being like, what is it? Tell me. And like this effortful, like if I just shake it enough, the answer is going to emerge and I'm going to know the truth. And I think what I've learned through, I mean, that just did not work. And so I started taking a different approach. I was like, how can I hold this as if I was holding an infant in my arms and like without squeezing it, just be with it and listen for what it's trying to communicate because there's an intelligence that's communicating. And so for me, it's just like, how do I actually listen in deeply enough to tap into that? And that requires me to really get out of my head and to be open to whatever emerges in the moment, to not think that I know. And so it's actually... In a lot of ways, it feels like letting, whether it's the unconscious speak or letting spirit speak through me and really listening. And the second thing I'll say is that I also have just had enough instances in my life where I've had an intuition, I didn't trust it. And then the thing happened or was happening. And initially I was like, no, maybe I'm being jealous or like, I'm letting fear drive my life. And then there was actually something deeper here. I knew something. And so there's also just more trust in myself from having more experiences where I've collected data. And I think it's been really important for me to pay attention to that. But part of, for me, learning to trust it was to actually notice all of the moments where I felt something And then the thing actually happened. It was guiding me in some way and to like keep a journal. This is when it happened. Now there's another instance. And it's like, I'm creating my own confirmation bias to like trust my own intuition so that I really trust in the ally that I have within me as it relates to intuition. I like that about something practical, like keeping a journal and trying to figure out, okay, how can we not let the voices in our head kind of get in the way of things, whether it's for better or for worse, trying to protect us or justify things and tap into that inner energy and intuition and wisdom, like you said, but in a way that serves us, not in a way that creates kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy of our fears, but in a way that guides us, maybe if not even away from the fears, but kind of through them to what's on the other side uh, and in a healthy way 
where the intuition allows us to uncover that wisdom within us. I think one of the things that I really loved from the last paradox retreat was learning the concept of sourcing. And there's this expression that if you sit in the question long enough, the answer will come. And I think that so often we go looking for the answer and we will climb mountains and talk to millions of people and do interviews. I'm thinking of people who have told me stories like this, have spreadsheets of the people's answers, collecting data, and saying, you know, I'm just trying to find the answer. Well, you have a thousand answers. You have no shortage of answers here, but they're not your answers. It's only up to you to be able to, I won't even say find, I'll say uncover the answer. And so we tend to think of answers as external. But what about this idea that answers are internal And instead of going looking for them outside of us, our job is just to dive deeper and uncover them within us. And so part of this concept of sourcing, which I would love to have you explain to people, is that. And it can take a lot of the stress and the pressure. Yes, it's a great idea. There's this answer. I just need to find it. But that's a lot of pressure, too. What if you already have the answer? You just allow yourself to bring it to the surface, that can be really liberating. So I'd love to have you explain a bit about sourcing and how that has been a powerful tool for you. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up because I think that is a really important part of my intuition practice and not one that I had yet spoken to. And I just want to share, like I've been studying for the last five or six years now with a wisdom keeper who's a carrier of different Mayan and Native American teachings. So I first learned this from her in the lineage of the Delicate Lodge teachings. Certainly it's something that I think so many humans over the span of our history have been practicing. And the idea of it being, we are not acting alone in any given moment. We are interconnected humans, whether that be like our connection to our community, to our partners, to a mission that we're part of, whether it be our connection to the earth, whether it be to the elements, whether it be to the universe, to spirit, to God, to the divine, whatever you want to call it. So the idea of sourcing is to really allow ourselves to source from life, to source wisdom, to source insight. And so one of the ways that we can do this is by sourcing from different elements. So for me, I feel a really strong connection to earth. And so often what I'll do is I'll go out and I'll find somewhere on the earth that I feel really drawn to. It might be in front of a tree. It might be literally lying on the soil. It might be, there might be a flower that I'm magnetized by. And so coming into harmony, into relationship with this thing, and I happen to be giving examples of tangible things, but I could also be sourcing from the divine. And in that often, like I bring a question that I am sitting with that I don't have the answer to. Maybe there's a longing I have in my heart and I ask that question and I set the intention to connect to any wisdom, to receive any guidance, any wisdom from the thing that I'm connecting to. And when I source and when I connect to life in this way, it makes it so much easier for me to trust my own intuition because I don't feel like I have to figure it out all on my own. I'm actually allowing myself to be guided and to receive support. An example that comes to mind kind of 
you saying, okay, how can you connect to something bigger than you, whether that's maybe thinking of people you know who have wisdom, maybe that's the earth, maybe that's water or elements of nature, maybe that's whatever it is that you believe in and sourcing the wisdom from there or within yourself, using that to bring out the wisdom that's within yourself and posing that question. So for example, somebody very near and dear to me has been struggling with the question of where to move to. These days you can move anywhere and this idea, I need to pick, where do I move to? I'm trying to figure it out. And I love this part where you say it's generally so simple and so profound. We just overcomplicate things. And so I kind of imagined her posing this question and just a whisper of just go. That as an example of like how simple could just go, right? Instead of, it's not like you should go live in this place for two months and then maybe it's not a plan. It's not a roadmap. It's a direction. It's a feeling or an intuition. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, if we notice that the brain is coming up with this long winded answer or we get this long winded response, it's like, that's your brain tricking you and to like trying to think that you just list that we're guided and more often than not. And so for me, it's been really important to like trust in the simplicity, the power of simplicity, because I remember the first time that I got like a one word or two word response, I was like, is that it? Did I miss something? And then when I actually allowed myself, when I just allowed myself to be with the message, And I allowed myself not to just be with it intellectually, but to be with it in my body, to be with it in my heart, to allow myself to feel it. Everything changed. Like I felt myself feel actually more deeply connected to myself. I think it's such a profound practice. And I will say that one of the places where I've struggled a lot in my journey of connecting to intuition is distinguishing between fear and intuition. And to me, when I know that it's my intuition and not fear, because sometimes the intuition can be protective. I'll use the example of when I was cheated on. There's something in me that's like guiding me, like something's off. Like there's the potential for you to be harmed. But when it's coming from my intuition, there's a way in which it feels, if I like drop into the feeling of how it feels in my body, it feels like it's coming from a place of deep service. Like it is in service to me on my path and there is a clarity to it. Whereas like when my voice of fear is really active, often I feel really unstable. I feel there can be more frenetic energy. And so I think that there are a lot of humans that I know, myself included, who have been in this lifelong journey of figuring out how do I know if it's fear or if it's my intuition? Like, how do I know if it's trustable? I've heard somebody in a similar way that was really helpful to me make that differentiation of oftentimes when it's fear and it's a resistance that we should break through, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of like logic, the data, the points, a lot's happening, right? Versus when it is your intuition, it's just this nudge. It's just this like gentle nudge. It's just there. There aren't as many things trying to justify it or think through it, right? It's the opposite of the logic. It's just a little nudge, a knowing, a feeling. And so I think 
absolutely that can be something hopefully more tangible for people to start to use to to guide themselves. What I love about what you're saying is because it's a nudge, it actually requires deep listening. Like it actually requires that we develop the skill of really being so present with ourselves that we don't miss. Because I think sometimes other voices within us, like the voice of fear, it can be a lot louder. And so it can actually like call a lot more attention to it at times. One thing that came up when I was hearing you speak that I jotted down and you just jogged my memory was, are we ready to uncover that answer? And that doesn't change the fact that it's within us sometimes, right? So if you pose this question, I'm going to go back to just this example of where do I want to move to? We have to be ready to uncover the answer. And if we can't manage to tap in, if it feels like there's nothing there, there's like a dial tone, is it that we're not actually plugged in or we're not hearing the dial tone or the message because maybe we're not plugged in because we're not yet ready. So I think posing the question, if you can't manage to tap in, is there something keeping you, protecting you from being willing to hear the answer? Well, I think this is all so important in relationships, but in life and when we can tap into our intuition or inner wisdom, then it can totally transform the way that we make decisions and how we feel guided in our life and can build so much trust in ourselves and in the path that we're on. And how powerful is that feeling of knowing that you are on the right path or even in knowing that even if you are a bit lost, knowing that you are capable of figuring it out, that you will and that you will get on the path that feels right and that you have all the tools, the knowledge and the wisdom to find that next step. I think that can be really, really transformative. Continuing along the relationship with yourself, what would you say that one of the biggest challenges you have faced in your relationship with yourself is? I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. For much of my life, I didn't feel enough. And I think that played out in a lot of different ways. I mentioned the kind of culture competition that existed in my household growing up. And in some ways, it led me to kind of throw in the towel. Like I was an honors student. I took AP classes too, but my brother was like a 4.0 student. My dad also loved to tell us that he was a 4.0 student. And so there was a way in which I was like, well, I can't compete with that. So I kind of just threw in the towel. Like I didn't try to be a straight A student. I was like, all right, I'm just going to do my thing in sport. There was a way in which my self-worth was something that continually needed to be healed. There was a way in which some of the aspects of myself that I struggled with, which I can speak to whether that's now or later, probably the biggest thing that has needed healing with myself has been anger that I believe is not just my own, that like also comes from my family lineage, as well as learning to forgive because I didn't have that model for me. But because I had these shadow aspects of myself, and I still do, I'm still learning to heal these after 15 years of deep, deep, deep diving into the self-development world. I was always afraid that my relationships would end because I wasn't perfect. But if I get to the root of it, there's this piece for me around like 
there's a part of me that just didn't really feel enough as a child. And so I've tried compensating for that for much of my life. And I feel really, really grateful to say that I think that 93% of that is healed in me now. And honestly, so much of that has been because of the work that I've done over the last decade. But what has really taken it over the edge for me has been the partnership that I'm in with Michael. And honestly, this relationship that I'm in now is one of the biggest things that helped me realize I actually can't do all of this by myself. Like this thing that I've been trying to heal within myself, I actually need the support of community and of intimacy as a doorway into that healing. So that's been really powerful to realize and to feel and ask for support and show the darkest, ugliest parts of myself that have contributed to the sense of someone's going to leave me if they know me or they really see me. Going back to this part of not feeling good enough, this core root deeper issue, which a lot of people struggle with, but some of whom might be conscious of it, others who might not be conscious of it. And I love that you brought up anger because I see this parallel thing of so many of us have anger inside ourselves. The way it is expressed or not expressed, the result, the consequences of that anger is completely different. Someone might yell and scream. Someone might break things. Someone might go silent. They might turn within. They might perform. There are so many different ways that the same core root emotion or fear is going to be expressed. And for me, one of the most powerful things I ever learned about anger is that these kind of four different causes or things that could come from of pain, shame, fear, and guilt. So you can see anger and it might be coming from shame, the feeling of shame or not being good enough or whatever it is. It can come from fear of what's going to happen. We might lash out because we're afraid of the unknown. It might come from just pain. We've been hurt. So for people who might not yet recognize or want to better understand how these emotions can show up, for you, how would you speak to the ways that not being the fear of not being good enough maybe was portrayed or the ways it showed up in your relationship? Some of the things that are showing up in response to that question are like in the moments, like if I think about the relationship, my relationship with Michael, like this doesn't happen very often now, but I remember in the first like couple of years of our partnership, sometimes I might feel like he was some part of me didn't feel like I was being fully loved by him. Or maybe there was a part of me that was afraid of that, like I was afraid of abandonment in some capacity. And so there were time, ways in which like I would get like upset or angry about things. Like really, I wouldn't actually get upset about, I wouldn't say it was that. And I don't even think that I was fully conscious that it was that. But it was like the thing that I was wanting was just his attention and his love. But the way that it was manifesting was like upset or criticism or things, these like sideways ways of calls for attention that were actually having the opposite effects that I wanted. Because what I wanted at the end of the day was to feel deeply connected to the person that I love. And what I was creating was more disconnection. 
I think that's a pretty common thing in relationship that I imagine that folks can relate to. But it's an important one. And I think it takes a lot of willingness to kind of sit with, even if it's not in the moment. Because I would love to have the awareness in the moment to the point where I'm actually just getting, communicating the actual need. But sometimes it's not even until after I've had this little flare up and Michael's being my mirror and just being like, what is going on right now? He's like, I can't tell you, but I can hold this right here for you to look into. He's like, are you like needing some attention? I'm like, no, I don't need attention. It's like, I'm just upset about this thing. But sometimes I don't even have the capacity in the moment. But maybe like an hour later, two hours later, as I allow myself to regulate a little bit more and move through some of the anger, it doesn't mean that it fully dissipates, but if I can be with it and I can be like, okay, what's behind you? Can you step aside for a second so I can see what else is here? Hand consistently, I can see like there's a longing that I have or there's a fear that I have that something isn't happening or there's a way in which whether it's not feeling enough, whether it's all sorts of other things can be behind that and underneath that, that has been really helpful to reflect on. Yeah. And looking at things and seeing, okay, what's missing here? And generally that's what the core desire is, what's not there, what we're not feeling. And then the question is, is the other person not giving it to us or are we out of protection denying them the opportunity to even try, not allowing ourselves even to engage in the potential to have that or feel that because of that fear of rejection or abandonment? Is that even keeping us from engaging in the very same behaviors that it is that we're craving? Yeah. And for me, I think, I mean, I'm still sitting with like the connection between your question and this, but it feels worth sharing. Like the biggest thing that leads me to get angry is when I feel like my boundaries are crossed. And I think what's interesting about this is if I think about, if I reflect on my childhood for a second, I mentioned that I didn't really feel like my mom modeled healthy boundaries for me. She was doing the best that she could in all of the ways that she knew how but her boundaries were incredibly porous. And so I think I learned that in order to preserve my sense of self-worth, in order to build up my sense of self-worth over the years, I've needed to put up boundaries. What's happened for me is in the moments when I feel like I've communicated a boundary and a boundary wasn't honored or respected, this protector in me comes out as anger and intensity or sharp and cutting, like kind of piercing. I don't scream. I don't yell. I don't get violent. Actually, Michael calls me a prickly pear because I got little prickles. And what's challenging is there are moments where it's like, I can recognize that the response that I'm having internally, because sometimes the anger is just held inside. It's not even communicated externally. I can tell that the anger or frustration that I'm experiencing internally does not match what's actually happening in my reality. There's no reason for me to be having the response that I've had, but it's as if my nervous system is so sensitive. It's so careful to not want to allow things to penetrate me or to cross my boundaries that I haven't welcomed. It's like the soldier waving the red flag. It's like, alert, alert. 
And so now these days, so much of my work currently is to say like, I have so much awareness about this pattern, but to say, okay, how do I really work with that part of me? I'm like, no, that's a friend. You can put the flag down, let it go. It's not a problem. Kind of a term that I joke around using, which of course comes from a moment like this where you find yourself having an episode about something and you're like, wait, my reaction and what I'm looking at are not match at all. So the expression I use is it's, it's never about the toaster. <laughs> like It's just, it's not, not about the toaster. And that came from a moment where I was having a moment and was able to be like, okay, sorry, I just need to explain this to you. This is, isn't really about the toaster. I know that I'm talking about the toaster, but this has nothing to do with the toaster. And this question of, is it what we're looking at that is really the stressor? Is it just how we're looking at it and through this distorted lens, right? Whatever it is, a burnt piece of toast or like breakfast sandwich. I was like, I am viewing this through the lens of anger. I'm frustrated with the situation. If anybody else made this breakfast sandwich for me, I would be really happy and I would think it was good. This is not about what I am looking at. This is how I am looking at it and recognizing, okay, I'm looking through a distorted lens here. And you don't even need to dive into like, let me go through all my trauma and figure out like what triggers this is. You can also just laugh and be like, okay, if somebody else put this in front of me, if I wasn't the person in this situation, if I was observing, how would I see this differently? What can I just like ground myself in the logic rather than the emotions coming up to bring more reality, more calm, more perspective, and maybe even some humor to this situation, right? To like prickly pear. I love those kinds of things. Or it's not about the toaster to kind of ground ourselves in, okay, the question, is this what I'm looking at? Or is it how I'm looking at? And then of course, the reminder of if this isn't going to be something I'm stressing about in two days, let alone in two hours, then like, does it even matter? Something that's actually been really helpful for me, maybe we've talked about this before, I don't remember, but I really love parts work. And so one of the ways that I've like gotten to, that's been really helpful for me in terms of building awareness of myself as it relates to these types of things is I love, I do actually do this with friends too. And Michael and I have done this together, which has been super helpful. But we've asked the question, like, if the different aspects of myself had personalities and names, who are they? And what are they like? What do they care about? And what lights them up? What upsets them? So anyways, one of these aspects of myself, her name is Tina. And so Tina is one aspect of myself. And <laughs> Tina is, she's like the, a part of me that is stuck in my teenage years. She is fiery as F. She's just as like my high school days. And like the reason I share that is because like even the way that she presented herself in the world, it was this I'm a badass. Don't mess with me. And that's kind of like the energy of her. And actually like the way she presents comes from the fact that there is a lot of pain that she experienced. I see Tina as a protector of my inner child. And I mean, there's so much more I could say about this, but the reason this has been so helpful is one, like I understand I have language for this aspect of myself that can get be really unskillful. That can be get angry. And I also really get her intention. Like she cares about me. She feels like she 
wants to make sure that I'm self-sufficient and like I'm caring for myself and wants to make sure I don't get hurt. And so understanding that and actually giving that part of me a label has been a really important part of my healing process because what was happening for me before was that I used to think I'm a horrible person. I have this anger that can lead me to act really unskillfully. So like, I'm not a good friend or I'm not a good partner or I'm not a good person. And now rather than accepting that as truth about who I am in the whole of who I am, I am able to say, there's a part of me that has anger, that gets upset, that becomes unskillful, that's learning, that's healing. But that feels so different when it comes to how I see myself and how I feel about myself. It feels very different than just seeing myself as only that because that's just not accurate. But it's been such an important part of my own acceptance and my own ability to like move forward on this path without just blaming, shaming, and judging myself. I love the idea of Tina and in a lot of different narrative therapy they talk a lot about creating kind of personas or names. I think parts work is something that can be really powerful for a lot of people. How would you explain sort of the process for beginning to explore this within oneself of how did you come about identifying these different parts that were fragmented that you could then begin to see the opportunity of how they could be reintegrated? And how would you recommend somebody begin to explore that within themselves? I think it can be really helpful to just take time. I mean, you can be playful about it. You can be reflective about it. When I first started this exploration for myself, I just had a conversation with a friend that we were like out on a hike and we had a two-hour hike. We had time and it was just like, okay, tell me about the part of yourself that you feel connected to and who is she? And at that time I was deeply immersed in the yoga and meditation world. And it was like, okay, there's this aspect of me who is very spiritual and like really dedicated to understanding herself and really dedicated to her growth. We'll call her Karina. I'm just giving you a couple of examples. And then there's this other part of me that's actually kind of in conflict with that, that loves to get on the bar and get wild and dance and that likes to get saucy and she's sassy and she's got that Latina fire and she's a little flirtatious. Okay, we'll call her Cece. And then it was like, oh, there's this part of me that's actually really insecure and that is afraid that she's not going to be accepted, that she doesn't belong. There's a part of me that is afraid of letting people down. Go, oh, that's my inner child. We'll call her something. And so the process is super exploratory and it's not like you have to get it right on the first try. But I think if I were to make a suggestion for how to explore it, have fun with it and like let yourself just be curious about knowing yourself. And I think a great way to understand how do we differentiate between one aspect of ourselves and another is where does it feel like there are tensions that exist? Like maybe there's a different way, a paradox in terms of how we show up. Maybe sometimes we show up one way, sometimes we show up another way. Okay, well, let's explore that. What's the aspect of ourselves that likes to show up? What else feels connected to that? And through that, I think it can begin to come forward. You know, the first time I did this, only three aspects of myself came forward. Now I've got many, many that I could speak about. 
probably I think at least like eight or nine. And as I grow and as I evolve, like so do they. And the thing that I think is important to say about this is I see every aspect of ourselves having a light side and having a shadow side. So a light expression being like ways of being and behaving and thoughts that are really serving of us showing up in alignment with our values, in alignment with our potential. And then the shadows being like ways of being and thinking and behaving and qualities that actually like keep us out of alignment with who we want to be in the world, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely helpful. And one of the points that you brought up was some of these are coming into direct conflict with one another. And I think that will be helpful to identify who are these parts that are on opposite ends of the spectrum and how can we take them from conflict to cohesion? And actually there's a podcast episode that I released, a food for thought episode about contradiction versus complementation and how so often we think, oh, these things are contradictory, they're opposite. But if we can reframe our perspective in the lens through which we're seeing things, we can actually begin to see them as complementary. These different parts of you if they can have each other's best interests in mind, they can balance out each other, come into cohesion and integration. But generally, they will probably begin coming in conflict with one another. And I think some of the questions, and I'd be curious what you have to say in terms of, okay, as people start to identify these parts, what should they do? And Again, it's never like trying to find the answer and figure out why we're like this, but what are some of the kind of questions you would suggest that people maybe pose to these different parts of themselves? I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to start somewhere else and say like, for me, the purpose of understanding the different aspects of of myself is so that I can become more integrated so that I can become more fully expressed. And this is something that I think that most of us long for. If I think about who do I get to be? What parts of me do I feel like are welcome at the workplace? And what parts of me do I feel like are welcome in my family? What aspects of myself do I feel comfortable and okay expressing within my intimate relationship? And oftentimes, we're not fully conscious of the fact that depending on the space, like we might be conforming or we might be unconscious marginalizing certain parts of ourselves. And so this exploration for me is all about like, how do I actually allow myself, give myself permission to express the range of human emotion and experiences and the qualities that actually encapsulate the whole of who I am. And so questions that can be really, really helpful. I love thinking about questions and I'm just flowing here. We'll see what comes out. But like, if I really just allow myself to feel into all of the different parts of me that want to be expressing in life in order to serve me and showing up in service of my potential and in service of having a positive impact on the world. Like what are the aspects or the ways of being that live in me that are wanting to be expressed for the sake of that? And I think through that, there can be an exploration of, okay, well, where am I already and what parts of me are already expressing that? The question I would ask is once we go through this process, what parts of me have had a lot of airtime in my life and which haven't? And which am I interested in like turning the dial up 
there might be fear around doing that, what the implications of that will be on our life. But like, where do I want to turn the dial up so I can be more expressed? And then what are the ways that that aspect of myself or that part of me can express more fully? What are some experiments that I could put myself into in service of that? In service of creating that integration, the ability to be more fully expressed across the different dimensions and different relationships in our lives. But most importantly, within the most important relationship of them all, the one with ourself. As, you know, over the years have gone through these different stages of work and with all of the things that you have learned, what advice would you give to your younger self? So my younger self was very concerned about other people's perceptions of her. So I think the advice I would give her is to like really trust that it's not about focusing on how others are perceiving, but like if she gives herself the gift of really being with herself and learning and like learning to love herself, that the rest will follow. And to also like really trust in that process, to trust in the timing of it, to trust she's already enough and she's already worthy and she's already whole. And it's just a question of remembering. And so that attention and intention and presence with herself will serve to bring her back home to herself. Thank you for bringing up that part about perception because that kind of segues into, as we've been talking about your relationship with yourself, and then of course, how relationships start to present this mirror to kind of put these things to the test. And so we go from self to kind of trying to, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so much, integrate or connect with another person In our interview with Michael, we will speak to more of this in the context of a partnership, but at the stage before that in dating, that's really where we start to kind of test things in the field research, right? And many people tend to come to the realization, and I always enjoy pointing out to other people in the context of dating, are you thinking about does this other person like me? Am I enough for them? Am I going to be good enough? Do they want to go on another date? Or are you thinking about what you want and whether or not this person is going to be able to give you the value that you deserve? And so in the context now taking all of this of what you learned about yourself and moving to the context of dating and beginning relationships with other people, what advice would you give people who are dating and whether or not they're looking for that end result or looking for something in particular to meet somebody. But what would you suggest that people really focus on and maybe the intentions that they carry with themselves through the process of dating? So there was a book that was really helpful for me as it relates to this. And that was, I don't actually remember the author, but it was called If the Buddha Dated. And so there was one activity that it had me do. I thought it was a super accessible, super practical book. It's been a long time since I've read it, but that was my recollection of it. And there was one activity that really stood out to me when I read it, which was that it had me write down a list of green, yellow, and red light signals as it related to dating and to like choosing a partner. And I came to this book at a time I had come out of a relationship. I had loved the person very much, but it had been a pretty unhealthy, it had some really unhealthy dynamics to it. And so I was 
heartbroken and healing and wanted to just understand like, how do I find my person? Like I kept being attracted to men that had good hearts, but really weren't good fits for me at all. And it resulted in some real toxicity that for not just for me, I think it was like a toxic dynamic. And so I loved this activity because it had me make a list of what are the green signals in terms of not just how the other person is showing up that indicates whether or not they're a good fit for me, but what are the green signals in terms of how I'm showing up? What behaviors would I see that indicate that I'm being really authentic? How would I be making decisions? Like, how would I uphold my boundaries? Like, how would I express myself during times when I was upset in times of tension or conflict? How would they be with me and hold me when I, my emotions were present? Like emotions maybe that are like heavier, whether that's sadness or frustration or challenge. And so this was huge for me. And then I did the same thing for what would be the yellow signals and what would be the red signals. And I realized after doing this exercise that in a lot of the prior relationships that I'd been in, actually at the start of the relationship, there were a lot of yellow flags, both those within myself in terms of how I was showing up and also in the other person. And once I started doing this, it became really clear to me the ways in which I hadn't set myself up for success going into these relationships because maybe I hadn't shown parts of myself or maybe I hadn't I had withheld, or maybe I had allowed my boundaries to be porous, or all of these ways in which at the start of a relationship, we often as humans want to show the bright and shiny. And so that practice, so simple, and it actually encouraged during the dating period, it encouraged having that list of signals posted on the refrigerator so that you would just look at it every day. And it was just this internal check-in. It's like, all right, I'm dating someone. How am I doing? How am I showing up? And where have I compromised myself? Where have I held back? And same with the other person. And that made it so much easier for me when I started doing that to be like, oh, that's not my person. And not to say that it was easy, but it helped simplify the process for me or helped me have more clarity. And using that mirror in a way, right? Oftentimes people are going into dating and they're thinking about the other person, trying to predict how they'll react or interpret their reactions versus thinking about, okay, this is the opportunity for me to look at what's being reflected back to me, what's happening here, not only what are the red flags of, oh, this person said this or where's this or, right? We oftentimes, I think people choose materialistic flags, (laughs) thinking of the deeper ones of, okay, what is this person bringing out in me for better or for worse? What kind of mirror are they holding up? What kind of opportunities to grow I being given or are being shut down? And using that different lens, a more synergistic lens rather than this one-way view of things. Yeah. And something I want to add is I actually feel what was sparked by me as I was listening to you is this practice actually helped me foster a lot more personal responsibility. I think that prior to this, I had this tendency at times to be like, why does this keep happening to me? Why do the wrong people keep finding me? Like, oh, they needed to change. They X, Y, and Z about them. 
And this practice helped me really look in the mirror at myself and say, I'm co-creating this. I am responsible for this. What are the ways that I'm showing up that's contributing to the reality that I'm now experiencing? How do I learn to advocate for myself? How do I take care of these things so that people really know who they're choosing and so that I'm choosing more effectively for the person that's going to be a good fit for me? Yeah, that piece of ownership and responsibility for your part of the process. Again, recognition, this is synergistic. This is relationships are co-created and can anything really be one way and one person's responsibility? Thank you for bringing that up. Speaking to that as an important kind of takeaway, lessons learned, how would you summarize some of the most important takeaways, lessons learned, or be it tools that you used that you found helpful through the journey of dating? So these can be either intangible things or kind of tactical, tangible things maybe that you did. Yeah. So I think one of them has been this idea of personal responsibility. Like I think about responsibility as being when our intention and our impact align with one another. And often I think I've had an intention for something and then the impact has been different than what I had hoped for. It's helped me understand like where I'm contributing to these unhealthy patterns that I didn't want to be experiencing. And in that, I was able to really take, I don't like the word control in this instance, but like I was able to take the reins and to more effectively create what I wanted by working on myself first and foremost. That's probably the thing that's coming up for me the most. One of the things that was super, super helpful, and this, Michael and I did this actually on the first within the first 24 hours of spending time together. So he, Michael actually brought forward this little communication protocol that was so powerful and so helpful. And I feel like really set us up for success. And it, the practice is called desires, fears, and boundaries. And the idea is that you take turns each sharing your desires, your fears, and your boundaries being like specific requests that you might have about a situation with one another. And so like if you, Sasha and I were doing desires, fears, and boundaries with one another, like I would, we would choose a topic that we were discussing it around. Like in our case, I was actually in San Francisco on a training. We were living on opposite sides of the country. We had three days that we were going to overlap in the same city. So we're kind of like exploring desires, like what are our desires, fears, and boundaries around like how we want to spend these three days that we have together. Given that we're pretty much strangers, we were set up by a mutual friend. There's some interest, but we're still feeling each other out. So Michael started and he shared his desires and super transparently. So the, this practice, like he really evokes transparency, vulnerability, and also a lot of empathy. Like if you're the listen, when you're listening, you're practicing empathy. And so he shared all of the desires that he had for our three days together. And they were very raw and very real and unfiltered. They were not perfectly composed or calculated. Like he just was real. And then I reflected back to him. The next step is like, as the listener, I reflect back what I heard him say his desires were. And then he had an opportunity to clarify if there was anything that I had misunderstood or if there was something that I missed. 
Once that was done, then we moved on to fears and we went through the exact same process he shared. Then I reflected back. He clarified if there was anything I had misunderstood. Then finally, he shared his boundaries. I reflected back his boundaries. And then there's a little bit of a conversation around like, what am I willing to agree to? Right. Because just because he has a boundary doesn't mean that like I'm necessarily on board with it. And so it opens up the space to have a conversation. Just to clarify, do you go through all of his, the three categories first, and then move to you and all three or back? Oftentimes it's really helpful to have the person who's like willing to be a little bit more to model courageousness and vulnerability go first. In this case, I had never done the exercise, so I needed him to go first. But what was so powerful was that the reason this stands out, this hands down stands out to me as like the most powerful experience I've had in dating. He modeled so much vulnerability and transparency in that chair that it completely threw me off. I've never experienced this with someone so quickly. And I was like, okay, well, if he's willing to be that transparent and vulnerable and courageous, I will be too. And so we went there together so quickly that what unfolded was like, if someone had asked me prior to meeting Michael on those three days, if I could feel like I was falling in love with someone after three days, I'd be like, no. And it transformed what was possible for me because we put our cards on the table. We were transparent. We were vulnerable. We were willing. We leaned all the way in. And so you can use desires, fears, and boundaries. We call it DFB. You can use that If you're moving in with someone, you can use that. If you're going to have a romantic getaway with someone and you're trying to decide like what you should do or like what type of experience you should create, you could do it if you're going to have like a sexy night together. You could really use this for anything. We've used it for like major life decisions and we've used it for like really playful adventures too. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I love how many different contexts it can be used for, for fun things, to group things, to partnership things, really powerful. And the part about feeling, even after just a few short days, kind of that you were already falling in love, which is going to lead me to add in a little question here. So because you threw the word love out there, I would love to hear what your definition of, and I'll let you choose, love or falling in love is. So for me, what I felt in this space of falling in love was I felt really open. Like I felt like my heart was just blasted open and not in, you know, I've had experiences when I was younger where it was like, I like need to drink this person up. Like I can't get enough. And like, not that that wasn't there. It was something different. It was this felt sense of my heart feels so, I felt a sense of safety in my own body. And like in this individual's presence, I felt there was this flow of vulnerability, this flow of us both being dropped in and open to our hearts. What it opened up for me was this feeling within myself. I feel my heart coming more online. Like I feel myself more connected to love in myself and like for another human being. It's showing me my own capacity for love. I also definitely had the butterflies in my stomach. I remember being like, wow, am I opening up too fast? Just the fears that can show up. But the feeling of it was actually one of like deep trust in the process and also 
feeling really held. But in the midst of that, and I think the falling, there was also like a tremendous amount of uncertainty. It's like, I've known this person for three days. And so with the uncertainty, there's this process of like, I'm still learning this person. I'm just discovering them. So there's this novelty, there's this ferocious curiosity that I had in relation to them. Those are qualities that I think of when it comes to falling in love. One thing that came up is, again, coming back to this synergistic, where it's not just about them and you fall in love with who they are. There's also who are you when you're with them? What parts of you do they bring out? The good ones, the bad ones, how are they received? But falling in love, not just with who they are, but who you show up as, what parts of you they bring out, and therefore how those two kind of of you are able to connect as a result. And another thing, I loved this idea of, I just wanted to drink this person up, this feeling of, I can't get enough, like, wow. And what came up is, and I think that in the moment, it can feel similar, but particularly looking back, the differentiation that came to mind is, okay, I want to drink this person up, like shots of tequila. Like, it's fun. I'm having a great time. Like, oh my God, this is so exciting. But while you're getting so much from that, it's also taking from you. If not in that moment, the next day, like there's also sacrifice and being taken from and it's an emotional roller coaster. You don't feel as good all the time. It's a lot of highs and lows versus, and again, I think in the beginning stages, maybe it's more blurry, but particularly looking back versus wanting to drink someone up as if they're a really nourishing cup of tea. That also really strikes me about falling in love is that actually often both can be present. Like it doesn't mean that when there's a maturity and a depth to it, it doesn't mean that it's lacking passion and play and spontaneity and desire. I see it as being like balanced with those other things. At least that was what my experience. And, you know, as it relates to love, To me, it's a deepening of all of those things, just like wine becomes richer over time. The quality of being in love, it was like more of me every day, more of me felt more welcome to the party. And actually that was even the process of falling in love. Something I would add to that was the reason I felt a sense of safety was that I actually felt he had the capacity to welcome all of me. And I didn't feel like 70% of me was welcome and the other 20% I needed to hide or cover. I actually felt like I could bring myself and the process of love for me has been like, it just has gotten more delicious and like tasty over time because there's even more vulnerability. There's even more courage. There is even more support and to like embrace the whole of who they are. Sometimes saying the hard truth or giving some feedback that like maybe isn't easy to hear having a courageous conversation, but it means I'm so here for this person with them. And like, I'm committed to holding them, to embracing them in all of the ways that they show up. And yeah, it's it's hard to put into words. I've never been asked this question before. So thank you for having me grapple with this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, very difficult, difficult question. Absolutely. And almost infinite answers, right? And that's, I think the interesting part is it changes throughout our lives different circumstances and contexts. But 
at the root probably has a lot of patterns and feelings. Thank you so much again for sharing all of this. And I'm so excited to integrate everything that we talked about today into our conversation with you and Michael. And today really focused again on the self and then beginning to integrate the self with another person through the context of dating. But I'm so excited to speak with you and Michael about partnership. A lot of people ask me, are there really relationships that are so fun and easy and effortless and look like they do on social media, which I have a million problems with the idea that anything on social media is real and many theories about that. But the realness that the two of you bring to this and simultaneously the amount of work and the amount of depth that you have gotten back as a result of that work, as well as some of the really, really interesting tools and games and strategies. You know, we got a taste of it there with the desires, fears, and boundaries, but I'm really, really excited to dive deeper into that through our conversation with the three of us. So thank you so much for joining me today, and I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun to get to share a bit about my story and also to get to geek out with you about all of these things that I just love talking about anyways. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime if you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism, we'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the Book Club newsletter, where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.